Before we get to the absolute last that we are going to hear about Patricia Esparza, I have a couple more things that I wanted to share with you about other people's opinions regarding her. We're going to start with some comments about the article that she wrote in the Huffington Post, and we're going to talk about some comments about her appearance on Dateline. I think I might go over some comments on Reddit, as well as some of our listener comments in our Facebook discussion group. I do want all of you to know that I did not take the story regarding sexual assault lightly. Every day, more and more stories come out from very well-known women, and sometimes men too, who decide they no longer want to hide in the shadows because of fear and shame. Just this week, or last week, as this will probably come out a little bit later, numerous women came forward and publicly accused industrial metal artist Brian Warner, better known by his professional name of Marilyn Manson, of physical and psychological abuse while they were in relationships with him. Once one woman finally spoke up, others followed suit, and then the following day, Manson was dropped from his record label and a letter was sent by a California senator named Susan Rubio to the FBI asking for an investigation into the allegations to be launched. We know it's different for celebrities when it comes to whether or not to come forward, even for regular people who aren't celebrities to come forward and levy accusations against a person who is famous like Marilyn Manson, or Harvey Weinstein, R. Kelly, Bill Cosby, James Franco, former sports doctor Larry Nassar, Matt Lauer, Kevin Spacey, Steven Seagal, Louis C.K., Danny Masterson, Jamie Foxx, Morgan Freeman. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. Some of these celebrities are in jail. Some of them have pretty much been canceled indefinitely from working probably anytime soon in any meaningful capacity in Hollywood. Some have happened so long ago that there is little that can be done about it now except provide these women a place to finally come out of hiding and speak up because there isn't anything to be afraid of anymore. Some of these men's careers will continue forward unscathed. There used to be a time when the repercussions would be so harsh and so swift against the accusers, especially when the sexual predator is someone like Bill Cosby or Harvey Weinstein, a person who could make or break you in the entertainment industry, that these women would choose to stay quiet in order to save their careers and their livelihoods. That's hopefully becoming less and less the case these days. Hopefully these powerful individuals will have a lot less clout and power in whatever industry they're in. Hopefully they're getting the message loud and clear that you cannot abuse people and hide behind your money, your name, or your fame. But for the anonymous young woman, whether she's living in a big city or small town USA, there is still that fear and shame that may hang over you for a long time to come if you choose to stand up for yourself and report your attacker. I just listened to two podcasts back to back. One of them was Dateline and the other was Invisible Choir, where there were these two young ladies. The victim on Invisible Choir, I think, was only 14, and she decided she was going to stand up to her rapist who was the father of the children that she used to be hired to babysit for. And in the Dateline episode, the woman was in college. 
She was being stalked and harassed and blackmailed by a former intimate partner. And this was a case where she called her college campus police numerous times to report what was going on with this ex-boyfriend of hers, and they just kind of blew her off. I'm sure lots of you recently heard either one or both of these cases. And in both stories, they end in tragedy. Where these women tried to get help, they tried to stand up to their attackers, and they ended up paying the ultimate price for their bravery. And it's heartbreaking. There's so much fear when it comes to making that decision to report. Because you never know when you're going to run across a man who would rather go to jail a murderer as opposed to going to jail as a rapist or a child sexual predator. Both of those stories really got to me when I listened to them earlier in the week. And then they had me thinking about Patricia Esparza and why her story didn't hit me the same way. Why am I looking at Patricia in a different light than I do almost all other victims of sexual assault or other types of abuse being done to them? I've told some of you in private, and I alluded to it throughout the story, and please try to understand the place that I'm coming from when I say, if and when Patricia Esparza went to jail for Gonzalo's murder, I wasn't going to be mad at that. Her story went way beyond her struggles to overcome so much trauma, because she never really did seem to struggle with it all that much. And while she chose to not report the alleged rape that she was accusing Gonzalo Ramirez of, it isn't what any of us were holding against her. It was the fact that she turned around and played a pivotal role in his murder and had no interest in helping to get a group of meat cleaver murderers off the street and into a prison for the rest of their lives where they should have been all along. It annoyed me that she claimed to be fighting for a safe world for her daughter to grow up in, yet she herself was one of the most dangerous individuals in the story for allowing those people to walk free for so long. This daughter of hers, this little girl's mother, commissioned the murder of a man by having him chained up in the dark loft of a transmission shop bound by the hands by a chain, dangling from the ceiling, his feet not even touching the ground, and then ultimately hacked to death with dozens and dozens of times with a meat cleaver or a machete or something similar. And the details are so sadistic and so gruesome. This was definitely the kind of killing that was meant to send a message. And Patricia Esparza while she may not have had a role in Gonzalo's death directly, the fact remains, if not for her, Gonzalo would be alive. He could have never imagined when he passed along his phone number to this cute young lady in the club that in three weeks' time, she would bring his killers right to him. Rape or no rape, Patricia had no right to do that. And that is part of the reason why Patricia, the victim, needed to take a seat. The story was about Patricia, the woman who conspired with others to murder. I just could not like this woman. I just could not sympathize with her. Anyway, 
in the episodes, I referred to an article in Slate about this. It's a really long article, so I'm not going to go over all of it. It's from back in 2014, so the case wasn't even completely adjudicated yet. She was still in jail trying to walk without any criminal convictions or any more time in prison. At the point that this article was written, she was still two more years away from being sentenced to six years in prison for voluntary manslaughter. As far as I can see now, Patricia is no longer in prison. I don't know where she is. I'm sure she's trying to lay low. Her last tweet on her at set Patricia free has not had a tweet since December 4th, 2016, when she arrived at what would be her new home for a while at Folsom's women's facility. But let me go ahead and go over some of the Slate article first, because there were some interesting details that I hadn't heard previously. It's titled, Who Killed Gonzalo Ramirez? And it's from February 10th, 2014, written by Emily Baslion. And it reads, In 1995, Gonzalo Ramirez allegedly raped Patricia Esparza. He was tortured and killed weeks later. Now she's charged with his murder. Is she responsible? On the morning of April 16, 1995, a passerby reported a body wrapped in strips of blue towel and lying on the side of the road to the police in Irvine, California. It was a young man, dead. Bloodied gashes covered his head, shoulders, back, and arms. His skull was cracked and two of his fingers hung from one hand, nearly severed. Forensic examiners later concluded that the wounds had been inflicted with a meat cleaver. The police identified the murder victim as 25-year-old Gonzalo Ramirez and soon linked him to another crime report they had received hours earlier. About 12.30 a.m., Gonzalo and a friend, Noel Reyes, had left a dance club, El Cortez, in Santa Ana, the city next to Irvine. Gonzalo had driven about a mile in his pickup truck when a white van rear-ended him at a red light. Gonzalo pulled over to the curb and got out. From the truck, Noel turned around and saw two men and a woman sitting in the van. One of the men got out and started to punch Gonzalo. Noel rushed to help his friend, but the second man got out of the van and came towards him. Thinking he had a gun, Noel turned and ran down the block for help. He found a security officer at a nearby Motel 6, but by the time they made it back to the intersection, Gonzalo, the two men, and the van were gone. Now, Dreamers, I hadn't really thought about it much before because we never know what Patricia has said is true or not. But, you know, it is possible that Patricia is the woman in the van that Noel saw. She has said that she was in another vehicle, that Shannon Grease's girlfriend was driving her around that she was driven someplace else, but who knows, right? I was under that impression that she was in a different vehicle and watching this unfold from there. It's possible that she was with Gianni and whoever this man was, or it could have been Diane Tran with Cody. Who knows? Maybe all of them were in the van and Noel could only see two of them. But anyway, the article continued. Noel told the police that he had no idea why the men in the van wanted to hurt Gonzalo. He'd never seen them before, and Gonzalo hadn't had any trouble at the El Cortez earlier in the evening. The police spoke to Gonzalo's brothers, who told them that he had three girlfriends, 
as well as a wife and two daughters in Mexico. So that clears things up a little bit here. Gonzalo is kind of a player, and he's messing around all over the place. But when police interview the women, they turn up nothing suspicious. Then in the third week of May, they got Gonzalo's phone bill, and they noticed another woman's name written on the back. It's the name Patty. And there were two phone numbers, one marked school and the other one marked home. Norma Patricia Esparza was a 20-year-old sophomore at Pomona College. She was home in Santa Ana for the weekend when she met Gonzalo. It was March 25th, a Saturday night, three weeks before he was killed. Patricia had gone to the El Cortez with her sister and a friend from school. Gonzalo was there and asked her to dance. At the end of the evening, he asked her for her phone number, and she gave it to him because she thought he was a nice guy, she would later tell investigators. Gonzalo called the next morning and asked Patricia to go out to breakfast. She told him she could go if her sister, Juana, and her friend, Nancy Luna, could come as well. Afterward, Gonzalo offered to drive Patricia and Nancy the 25 miles or 40 kilometers back to Pomona, and they said yes. He dropped Nancy off at her dorm and asked Patricia if she would show him around campus, and he also wanted a drink of water. Patricia later told police, said, well, I have a lot of work, but sure, I have to drop my stuff off, so let's just go up to my room. Patricia had a single. Gonzalo laid down on her bed, and he asked her to have sex. She said no. He insisted, saying that she had led him on. She told the police that she said to him, you know, you have to leave because I have my work to do. And Gonzalo persuaded her to lay down next to him and they talked for a bit. But when he tried to kiss her, she got up and asked him to go again. Instead, he started pulling her clothes off and she wound up on the floor. When we were struggling and I seriously don't know how I ended up there, she said, after he wrestled her pants off. She stopped trying to fight. I figured it would be better for me if I just pretended that I'm just going to go along with it, she told police. I just kind of blanked out. Next, Patricia cried into her pillow. Gonzalo asked if he could see her again, and she said no, and then he left. Patricia went the next day to see a college nurse and got a morning after pill. She told the nurse that she had been date raped, but the nurse, according to what Patricia told investigators, didn't suggest making a police report. Neither did a professor Patricia said she talked to about the rape when she burst into tears as she tried to explain why she missed a deadline for class. Patricia told one other person, her ex-boyfriend Gianni Van, they had started dating the previous August. They met at the clothing store where Patricia was working for the summer when Gianni came in to pick up an order. He was a 25-year-old assistant manager at a shoe store at, in nearby Costa Mesa and had an interest in fashion design. He liked to surf and drove a sports car. They went on dates to the beach and to the movies. They saw each other a few times a month until February when Patricia broke up with him. She felt that Gianni was getting too possessive and she wanted to concentrate on her studies, Patricia says. In April, though, Gianni called and asked if he could come to Pomona to see her. He visited her two weeks after the rape. When he opened the door, there were tears in her eyes. He asked her what was wrong, 
and she said that she just wanted him to be there and comfort her. They spent the day together. That night, they both later told police Patricia finally told Gianni that she had been raped, and when he pressed her, she told him Gonzalo's first name. The article skipped ahead a bit to May as the investigation into Gonzalo's death was still ongoing. On May 24th, the day after seeing Gonzalo's phone bill with Patty scrawled on the back, investigator Ben Meza asked Gonzalo's roommate, Elo Silva, if he knew who Patty was, according to investigators' notes on the case. Elo said that a few weeks before the murder, towards the end of March, Gonzalo had come home and told him that he'd been in the dorm room of a girl by that name. Elo had been lying on his bed when Gonzalo grabbed the cuffs of his pants and yanked them off. That's the way I took the girl's pants off that I had sex with, he remembered Gonzalo saying. The phone numbers Gonzalo had written on his bill traced to Patricia's Pomona College dorm room and to her family's house in Santa Ana. On June 8, 1995, Meza and another officer went to talk to Patricia. The police asked if she knew Gonzalo and she said yes. She told them about the rape and that she also had confided in Gianni Van, her ex-boyfriend. The police asked Esparza if Gianni had gotten upset and she said yes, according to a transcript of his interview, but she continued, but he was just there for me. She was asked if Gianni had done anything to suggest that he might retaliate and Patricia said no. And this is where Patricia's two-decade-long odyssey of lies began. Dreamers, this version of her story, which was told to Slate before she spoke to Dateline, It's kind of more believable, isn't it? I mean, we know a little more about Gonzalo here. We know he's kind of juggling women. While it doesn't necessarily mean he didn't rape Patricia, but it also doesn't seem like Gonzalo had a hard time finding women to consensually have sex with him. Again, to be clear, this is not to say that he isn't capable of raping a woman. We just don't know or see of any history of sexual violence towards women in his background. That's all I'm saying. And that Patricia story here, it does sound a bit more believable. But this is where we start to see Patricia begin the long list of lies that she would start to tell for years to come. First of all, let's not forget that Gonzalo was murdered on April 15th going into the morning hours of the 16th of 1995. The alleged rape happened exactly three weeks earlier. They had met on March 25th. Patricia says that she was raped the next day, Sunday, March 26th. The officer asked her if Gianni had become upset, and she said yes, he did. Now, we know that Patricia would go on to claim for years and years to come that she was deathly afraid of Gianni and his co-conspirators. Yet, the very first time she's questioned by detectives about Gonzalo's murder, she immediately gives up Gianni's name, a man that she's scared to death of, a man that she says punished her by forcing her to watch as he tortured Gonzalo for what she said he had done to her. Scared her for life yet not a moment of hesitation to throw him under the bus before she would even consider admitting to her role in this whole convoluted story. 
So she's speaking to these detectives on June 8th, right? The time lapse is 54 days, one month and 24 days since Gonzalo was discovered dead on the side of the road. According to the investigation, Patricia and Johnny were married a month after Gonzalo's murder. That would have been sometime in the middle of May. And that would be at most three weeks before she sat down and had this first interview with investigators assigned to Gonzalo's case and sat there and lied through her teeth. So keep that in mind. Patricia, afraid for her life because of what Gianni did and tormented her for most of her life by the fear and shame and intimidation of men instilled in her at a very young age as a result of sustained sexual abuse by her father, not only gave police the name of Gonzalo's murderer, she did so without fear or hesitation. Because we know she's not going to take responsibility for anything. And she's also sitting there telling these detectives that Gianni is her ex-boyfriend, when the fact of the matter is she's married to the guy at the time that this interview is taking place, and she'd been married to him for going on about a month. So Patricia is identifying Gianni as a person of interest. She is lying when she says that Gianni gave no indication that he wanted to retaliate. The truth is she absolutely knew Gianni wanted to retaliate, and she took him and his friends to the place where they could find him in order to carry out the retaliation. And she's identifying Gianni as an ex-boyfriend when the truth is he was her husband. A woman so intimidated, so bullied, and so terrorized by men, never even batted an eye as the lies came spilling out of her to those two detectives. And not just regular old detectives, but homicide detectives, because Patricia had taken notice that the men she is telling these lies to are from the homicide unit. So she asks a question. And I believe it was meant to throw doubt as to what Patricia knew or didn't know at the time. She asked, is Gonzalo dead? And she did follow that up with telling Detective Meza that she did notice that they were homicide investigators and he answered yes. He told Patricia, if you know who killed him, this is the time for us to talk about it because we do not want you getting into something that later on you might not be able to get out of. And there you have it, dreamers, the very first time someone reached out to Patricia, 54 days after Gonzalo was murdered, she was explicitly told by two seasoned homicide detectives, two adults, mind you, as Patricia, a future PhD and working in some capacity involving mental health at the World Health Organization in Geneva, Switzerland, and teaching psychology at the university level seems to have needed adult supervision or adult guidance when it came to figuring out what the right thing to do was. She said in her interview on Dateline when Andrea Canning asked, Do you wish now that you had gone to the police? Patricia's answer was, I wish at some point this whole cycle had been stopped either by an adult or by myself, but when you are traumatized, when you are raped, when you are terrorized, when you see what you saw, I don't see how I could have possibly stopped it if it wasn't somebody coming forth and helping me. 
They did. As soon as they tracked her down, as soon as they connected her to Gonzalo, 54 days after he was killed, two adult police officers came forth directly to her. So when she says she wished that somebody did, they did. And it would have been the first of many times that they tried to reach out to her for help. Nobody wants meat cleaver murderers running around their cities. But every single time that they came forth to get her help, to help her, she batted them away. Do you want to know exactly how long it was before Patricia finally took responsibility? It was 7,709 days, 21 years, one month, and eight days after Gonzalo was killed is how long it took for Patricia to finally say guilty. And she waited until her back was pressed up against the wall so hard that she had no other choice but to accept a sentence of six years or a sentence of life. I wonder if she ever heard those words spoken on that audio recording in that very first interview with police 21 years earlier. This is the time for you to talk about it because we don't want you getting into something later on that you might not be able to get out of. For her to have the nerve to say that she wishes someone would have come forth with help, there it was. It was right there in the very first interview Patricia had way back in 95. We don't want you getting into something that you later on might not be able to get out of. It's so prophetic. But she told the two adult homicide detectives that she had nothing more to offer. They pushed for more answers because of the way Gonzalo was killed, all of his injuries. They told Patricia, this killer is someone that is very, very angry, and somebody that has a nice build like you, and I think he was attempting to appeal to Patricia's very apparent narcissism here by sort of complimenting her, and you get raped by this guy? Don't try to protect anyone. Is there somebody you're trying to protect? Because don't do that. You were a victim, like I said, so I want to keep it that way. So right there. That officer hints at the possibility of Patricia being cast as a co-conspirator. She says she was raped, and she has a pretty good case for it considering what Gonzalo's roommate had said about him yanking his pants off by the cuff and kind of bragging about how he got her clothes off. That was kind of, well, it sounds kind of aggressive. If she's saying no, if she's going along with it, and they're taking each other's clothes off in that manner. That might be a part of the moment, but I don't know. I don't really want to think about it. But Patricia did not take the help that was being extended to her in that moment. And really, she never would. She continued to provide no further information. She didn't tell them that she was present during the kidnapping and the torture, that she knew all about it, that she knew it was planned, and that she had married the man who she just identified as the person she confided in about the rape. None of this information she divulged. The detective was sensing that she was holding back information and he told her, I just get this feeling that you know more than you're wanting to tell us 
and you may be protecting somebody. And he asked Patricia if she would like to take a polygraph test, and she said she would. And he said that he would call and make the arrangements, and before he left, he said these words to Patricia, I hope that you're being completely honest with us, because murder is the kind of crime that doesn't go away. This investigation will never stop. And Patricia, as narcissistic as she was, and probably continued to be, just shrugged him off like whatever. She thought so little of Gonzalo's life, and she thought that he would just get buried in a stack of cold cases. But they had a hunch about her, and this murder was just too brutal to ever be forgotten, no matter how hard Patricia tried to make it be forgotten. One of the places where investigators dropped the ball was they never followed up on that polygraph test with Patricia. They just kind of let it go. They also never followed up with in interviewing Nancy Luna until 2012. That's when they got that information that Patricia was there that night taking Gianni and his friends to the El Cortez and identifying Gonzalo for them. They would have had all that information way back in 95 if they had interviewed her way back when. Patricia did what she did, but investigators, they dropped the ball in several aspects of the case as well. The article next read, For 17 years, that warning barely echoed in Patricia Esparza's life. She graduated from Pomona with a double major in psychology and women's studies. She went on to earn a PhD at DePaul University in clinical psychology. As a researcher, she focused on human resilience, studying how Latino and urban teenagers develop a sense of belonging and cope with loss and conflict. In 2007, she became a consultant on mental health to the World Health Organization in Geneva. By then, Patricia had married Jorge Mancias, a neurobiologist who had his own biomedical research lab at UCLA and taught at the medical school. In 2009, Patricia took a position on the faculty of Webster University in Geneva and gave birth to a daughter, Ariana. Jorge had started working at the Global Fund. They'd each been born in Mexico. Now they were buying an apartment in a small French town near the Swiss border installing a new kitchen, and settling down to raise their child. And then the past charged in. On her way to an academic conference in St. Louis in October of 2012, Patricia was arrested at Boston's Logan Airport for the 1995 murder of Gonzalo Ramirez. Until police handcuffed her at Logan Airport, Patricia says she had no idea she was a wanted fugitive. Well, Dreamers, that isn't completely true. She may not have known that the arrest warrant was secured, but when investigators did find out that she was no longer married to Gianni Van, they tried to track her down at her last known address, which was in Chicago where she had earned her PhD, but it was then that they found out that she had moved to France. They sent her an email asking if she would be willing to talk now that she was no longer married to Gianni, and she emailed them back and told them she was not interested in speaking to them. 
So she knew that even after about 15 years that the detectives were still trying to bring about an indictment against Gianni and company by reaching out to her, but she still had no intention of helping to get these murderers off the streets. They did tell her that she wasn't a suspect, that they weren't after her. And maybe at the time they weren't, but they needed her to talk. And if it's going to be that they end up having to give Patricia immunity because without her they'd have no case, then so be it. But she declined, opting to just continue ignoring the so-called dark cloud hanging over her head. But I don't believe Patricia saw it that way. She said it on Dateline. She was anxious to clear up the black cloud. And she called it a black cloud, but I don't like calling it that, so I'm calling it a dark cloud. But that's a lie, too. She was never anxious to clear up this case. As a matter of fact, she boasted that if not for her information, that police would have never been able to solve it without her. And she was going to try to play that hand for as long as she could. But what Patricia didn't realize is, is that the longer she let this go, the more evidence police were going to be able to gather up against her that they were going to be able to use if and when the time came, she would be made to stand trial for this. But for a woman who has all these degrees and fancy job titles, she sure as hell seemed to forget something very, very important about crime. Evidence, science, technology, forensics, all the good stuff that we like to see in our cases. Those things tend to age really, really well. And people change. And whatever is going on with people, either the level of fear that set in initially when the crime actually happened, tends to dissipate over time. Relationships change. People change. They start talking. Forensic testing starts to unlock its own secrets. And that's exactly what happened and what led to Patricia's arrest in 2012. Patricia was still playing the same hand that she held back in 1995. I've got information that these cops want, and I'm not going to give it to them unless I get what I want. And this is why police keep certain things close to the vest. But Patricia's hand was no good by 2012. She seemed to forget what the cops had told her way back when. Murder is a kind of crime that never goes away. And not only did advances in testing finally identify Gonzalo's blood in the transmission shop, but they also tracked down Patricia's old friend, Nancy Luna, who they didn't talk to initially. And she was willing to testify that Patricia was there with Gonzalo's killers the night that he was murdered. And by the time they'd arrested Patricia in Boston, they had uncovered even more evidence. Nancy's exact statement was that Patricia was in on the planning, that she was there the night that they went to look for Gonzalo at the El Cortez, and that Patricia knew that they all had intentions of retaliating against Gonzalo for raping her. Remember, Nancy was never spoken to back in 1995. But by the time cold case detectives began taking another look at the case, which was more than a decade later, Nancy brought about information that they had not previously had, and it was very damning for Patricia and the claims that she had been making all these years. 
So anyway, the Slate article said that until police handcuffed Patricia at Logan Airport, she had no idea that she was a wanted fugitive, which is how they get you, right? They don't want her to know that she's been indicted on murder charges. Investigators had surreptitiously placed Patricia's name on the Homeland Security watch list. I mean, why would Patricia know? If she knew, she would have never flown into the United States. Maybe. Investigators just decided to lay low for a while after setting their trap and to see if Patricia would walk right into it, and she did. I guarantee if Patricia knew she was wanted, she would not leave France. Perhaps. I mean, she was going to Boston for a week-long rendezvous with an old boyfriend. If she was worried, she may not have even cared because she was looking forward to spending the week with another man while her husband, a half a world away in France, was taking care of her little girl, as a dutiful husband would, while his wife flies off for a tryst in Connecticut. She likes to speak of her dedication to her family, especially her daughter, before the media. She talks about being ripped away from her child, disappearing from her child's life, the Orange County authorities tearing her family apart. Yet she has not a problem walking off from her child and her husband when they dropped her off at the airport to go fly over to the United States to spend a week with another man. I normally wouldn't harp on this types of things too much because they happen between all sorts of couples, but not everybody turns around and plays up the family-centered woman who is being persecuted by law enforcement for a crime she says she's innocent of. She rode that out to the end. My daughter, my daughter, my daughter, how will I explain everything to her? Well, Patricia, here's an idea. How about telling her the truth? Don't hide it because sooner or later, she's going to be able to Google her mom's name and find out all about it on her own. Patricia needed to stop lying years earlier. If she had, she would not be sitting in the Orange County Jail in 2012, 17 years after Gonzalo was murdered. She could have cleared this up, told her husband the truth. He would have guided her into doing the right thing and taken responsibility for what she had done. But no, it didn't suit Patricia to be forthcoming and to be honest. So the article continued. Held for two months in the Orange County Jail, Patricia finally told police her version of the events leading up to Gonzalo's murder. After she provided her statement, she was released on bail, which was $300,000 and included her mother's interest in her own home, and with that, Patricia was allowed to go back home to France. By the end of 2012, based largely on what Patricia had revealed in her interrogation with detectives, Gianni Van, Shannon Grease, and Diana Tran were all indicted on murder charges related to Gonzalo's case, to which they pleaded not guilty. By this time, it had only been about five months since Diane's husband, Cody, the co-owner of the transmission shop, had died after a confrontation with police, and he ended up turning the gun on himself, taking his own life in July of 2012. So Cody Tran would never be made to stand trial. Patricia's information about what happened the night of the murder did help bring about those indictments. 
And she did travel to California numerous times over the course of the next year to attend hearings and to testify about the murder when the grand jury was convened. She was being as cooperative as she could be now because she was trying to kiss the Orange County prosecutor's ass. But despite the cooperation, the prosecutors had pretty much all but decided that they were not going to allow Patricia to get off scot-free. She had her opportunities for many years to come forward. Then she came back for her own hearing, you know, the one where she gave the press conference the day before where she said she would not accept a plea deal because it would all be a lie. And she did reject the plea deal and her bail was revoked and she was remanded to custody immediately. That was a deal where she would have served three years for pleading guilty to voluntary manslaughter, either that or stand trial for a first degree murder. The prosecutor's office felt like that was a fair deal for her role in Gonzalo's death, while Patricia maintains that it is unfair because she is innocent of all charges. While this article in theslate.com was written a couple years before Patricia ultimately accepted the plea and her sentence was doubled to six years, the article did question how Patricia went from being a victim of rape to a murderer in the eyes of the prosecutors. While it all hinged on what happened the evening that Gonzalo was murdered, Patricia kept that a secret from investigators back in 1995, but she did tell the story in 2012. That whole thing about Gianni taking her to the El Cortez on the chance that they might find Gonzalo there. Patricia said Gianni was going back and forth between anger and blame, blaming Patricia for the rape, accusing her of wanting the sex, that they all went to the club herself, Gianni, Cody Tran, and Shannon Grease, that Grease's girlfriend was there too that night, and she had not given the statement to police in 2012 either, along with um, Nancy Luna, Patricia's friend. Patricia said she didn't know any of these people that well at all. She described being threatened and intimidated by Gianni into telling him where to find Gonzalo. Patricia said she was incapable of coping with the terror because of the sexual abuse that she had suffered as a child. Patricia is quoted in the article as saying, For a very long time, it was very difficult for me to travel back into that moment. I struggled a lot until I talked to a psychiatrist last summer. I was able to describe my emotions and he gave me perspective that made a lot of sense to me. When you've been abused for years by your father, it doesn't take a lot for you to be threatened and to feel threatened. Gianni was bullying me about the rape and I wasn't necessarily thinking about what would happen at any later point in time. The psychiatrist said when you're in survival mode, your ability to foresee the next step to think about consequences stops working. That's consistent if you read about trauma. It's been 18 years, and honestly, this part is blurry. But as far as I know, all that I thought was, this man is on me, and I need to get him off. As for what Patricia expected Gianni would do to Gonzalo, last year she told the grand jury she thought that the worst that would happen was that he would rough him up. Patricia left the club with Gianni in a car that followed Cody Tran, Shannon, and his girlfriend. So it is possible that Patricia wasn't in the van with them. I'm not really sure this is what her testimony was. When the van hit Gonzalo's truck and the men got out and went after him, Patricia said she was completely taken by surprise. She said, quote, 
Not in my wildest dreams did I expect that Gonzalo Ramirez was going to be pulled into a van. Shannon's girlfriend got out of the van and drove Patricia away in the car. She said about an hour later they were summoned by Gianni to come to accurate transmission. Patricia said she was taken upstairs and she saw Gonzalo hanging by chains from the ceiling, beaten and bloodied. Patricia told police that he said to her in Spanish, I don't know you, little one. Diane Tran was at the shop, too, and when she spoke to police in 2012, she said she saw Gonzalo covered in blood and she saw him speak to Patricia a few words in Spanish. Shannon's girlfriend said she was downstairs and she heard Patricia say something like or scream that it wasn't him, but Gianni and Cody didn't believe her. Now see, there is a clear moment where Patricia may have been able to redeem herself, a moment where she may have tried to spare Gonzalo this fate, if true. And it didn't come from Patricia, so it may very well have been true here. The men used the sight of Gonzalo in that condition to warn the women to stay quiet about this whole thing, otherwise it would happen to them too. And there you have it. Patricia may very well have been afraid of the sight of Gonzalo being tortured. Patricia said from there she shut down, having fallen into a pattern of fear and submission instilled in her by her experience of abuse as a child. She said, quote, I felt I needed to submit to survive. I'd been broken by the years of abuse by my father. I couldn't assimilate so many traumatic experiences. I felt utterly trapped. The Slate article posed the question, how much responsibility does Patricia bear for the death of Gonzalo Ramirez? Does her fear and paralysis excuse her? Or should she spend years in prison for failing to save the man who raped her? After looking over thousands of pages of documents in this case, the author of the article concluded that Patricia is not blameless. She missed repeated chances to go to the police and tell the truth, including after she saw Gonzalo hanging by those chains in the hours before he was killed. At the time, there didn't seem to be much evidence that Patricia helped plan the killing, but police would have statements later on from Diane Tran that she was involved. Yet Patricia was facing life in prison if she went to trial and was convicted. So skipping ahead a little bit in the article, it said that Patricia had gotten the support of thousands of people who wanted to see her freed and not convicted of any crime. She was praised for her resilience and accomplishments and they see the manner in which she was being treated by Orange County authorities as a classic case of institutional betrayal, and they are sending the message that survivors will not be believed. On the flip side of that, Patricia's skeptics point out that she is always accusing others for her plight and that she is playing the victim for her own gain. Her story is sad, but is it believable? The chief of staff for the Orange County District Attorney's Office called Patricia a very sophisticated defendant. She has a PhD in psychology and she knows how to play on people's emotions, including the use of her four-year-old daughter as a prop at the press conference. This is a woman who is trying to act like a victim in a case when the real victim was brutally murdered and the case went unsolved for 20 years. Patricia refused the plea deal, and she said she is finally standing up for herself. 
I took a decisive step in defining and defending what is just, unjust, right, and wrong. That was the start of a journey, she wrote from prison about her decision to not accept the manslaughter charge. On setpatriciafree.com, the website to support her. It no longer exists, so don't bother searching for it, dreamers. However determined that Patricia may have felt, this is a hugely risky journey given the long sentence that Patricia was facing if convicted. Along with the tangled question her case raises about victimhood and culpability, it also demonstrates the massive power prosecutors have to pressure defendants to plead. Prosecutors routinely use the threat of high sentences to leverage those pleas and manage their workloads. So is this what prosecutors are doing? Upping the charge against Patricia in order to get her to talk, to help their case against Gianni and the others? The DA's office says no. After all, Patricia has already told the police her story of the events leading up to the murder. She's been charged for Gonzalo's killing because there is sufficient evidence to prove she is guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. If you know someone will be murdered and you aid in a bet by pointing him out beforehand, that's participation. We have the evidence to show that when she pointed him out, she knew that Gonzalo Ramirez was going to be killed. At the time, the person who wrote this article didn't know that Diane Tran implicated Patricia, including knowing in advance that Gonzalo was going to be murdered. They had not disclosed this information at the time this article was published. The rest of the article talked about the case against everyone else, but since it's all been played out and everything's been said and done, I'll just leave it at that. There was much more that came out about Patricia later on that made the case against her even stronger, so this article is not going to age very well, but there were a few things there that I wanted to touch on that we hadn't heard previously in the case. So on this website called Eyes for Lies, it's this site put together by a credibility and deception expert. It's all opinions, but one of the things they talk about is when it came to Patricia Esparza and her appearance on Dateline. So one commenter said, in her interview with police, Patricia was all over the place. She went from present tense to past tense. She would drop pronouns. She was really unbelievable. I don't get the sense of a person who was abused and trodden under, as she maintains. She seems to be a better person who blames everyone else for her problems and doesn't seem to connect herself to the murder case. When it came to her article that she wrote to the Huffington Post, Patricia said all of her problems with the murder charges is because she didn't go to the police when the rape happened, which is grossly oversimplified, and I did point that out in her article. She went on to say how many women don't report rapes, but in spite of rapes not being reported, not all of the abusers wind up murdered as her abuser had. She oversimplifies her problems with overall statements of it happened all because she didn't go to the police 20 years ago. I just don't believe her story. In defense of Patricia, one commenter wrote, I'm not sure how much we will ever know about her level of culpability in this case. There are certainly some signs that can lead one to believe that she had minimal involvement in the actual murder. I think if the jury truly followed the concept of guilty beyond a reasonable doubt, Patricia would have easily been found not guilty. However, if you follow American juries, they do sometimes vote guilty when there is a significant amount of doubt. 
If she lost, she may never see her child again. In hindsight, yes, she should have taken the three years, but it's obvious she broke in prison under the full weight of the American justice system weighing down on her. I think she had to take it. This is not the American justice system's finest hour. There really is a very good chance Patricia was a raped woman who went to jail for a crime of passion her ex-boyfriend committed. For all the problems America has, it's pretty pathetic that the justice system thought destroying Patricia was worth the momentous effort. Another commenter wrote, My first impression of Patricia is that she's passive-aggressive and manipulative. She seemed unable to maintain eye contact with the interviewer for any length of time. She did a lot of looking down or looking around, lots of doublespeak. I'm not sure how a man can force a woman into marriage in the late 20th century. Then there's a certain type of person who is unfortunately attracted to the mental health profession. They're in it for the power it gives them over others. That's why researching therapists is so very important. I don't know if Patricia was ever a practicing therapist for longer than necessary to get her degrees, but it's hard to imagine her putting the needs of others before her own. In another article about Patricia on the Eyes for Lies website, there is a discussion about her Huffington Post article. I think some of the things may be similar to what we've already discussed, but there are a few other opinions that I wanted to share with you. The commenters questioned many of the same things that I questioned that didn't seem to make a whole lot of sense, such as Gianni Van coming over and getting so angry about Patricia being raped that he wanted to murder somebody. She said, quote, A man I had dated for a few months came to visit me, attempting to rekindle the relationship. Then one horrible night, he and a group of his friends proceeded to take matters into their own hands. I was whisked away by one of his friends while the others physically assaulted the man who raped me. I was warned that if I turned against them, a worse fate would await me. The commenter said that this section makes me furrow my brow. I guess it's possible, but it sounds odd to me. Some guy she used to date for only a few months in college gets that enraged that he kills her rapist and gets his friends to cooperate? Also, if she was brainwashed to be afraid to speak up about the murder when she was young, surely someone of her education and position would be able to think more independently. Why not come forward herself about the murder sooner? The part that makes no sense to me is when she says, I had been damaged, dishonored to him. He bullied and blamed me for it. Right before saying, one horrible night, he and a group of his friends proceeded to take matters into their own hands. I was whisked away by one of his friends while the others physically assaulted the man who raped me. If he blamed her, why would he go after the rapist? Nothing about what she claims this guy was thinking and saying is logically consistent or makes any sense. Even if you take away all of the manipulations and assertions, the words don't flow very well. It's just slightly weird. It reads like it's written by someone who is not educated that is really trying to sound smart. I'm having trouble with this story, I think primarily because she is mixing truth with facts. It's like I feel that by being against her, that everyone will think I am against rape victims. 
So honestly, I feel that being against her, I will be against rape victims, being upset that people criticizing her and her writings, et cetera, et cetera, that I will be against her and her writing, and it's just weird. I do see the points everyone is making about the red flags with her story. It's tough. You don't want to be on that jury. I think she probably understands that many people are sympathetic to rape victims and don't want to be the one to say that a rape story is fake. I have no idea how she dare come to the United States so super arrogant. I mean, even Roman Polanski has been able to stay out of California, the capital of film, to avoid being prosecuted for his sex crimes. Well, technically, he was prosecuted. He's avoiding being sentenced. And I did bring up the Roman Polanski example, too, earlier in one of these episodes. I can't remember which one. And the comment continued, Patricia was so narcissistic that she even thought she had more clout than the famed director. How could she not do the same? Her crimes are even worse. Even with a PhD, she has way less fame than Polanski. It says something about her persona. What got me most about her article was when I thought, what are the odds that the friends of your ex-boyfriend, who you haven't been with in a while, would participate in murdering your alleged rapist? Why would they care so much? She also never mentions being afraid of these people afterwards. I would probably live in fear of the people who murdered my rapist that could one day turn against me and murder me and my family. She never mentions at all this fear. And she has a young daughter. Wouldn't she be afraid of coming to the United States and seeing these vicious people who have gotten away with murder? Another comment said, She is very educated, but even though I still don't have an opinion on whether or not she's lying, the disjointedness of her story is suggestive that she's trying to explain a set of concrete, indisputable facts without telling the truth. The next comment said, I know she is highly educated with a PhD. That's why I find some of her statements odd, like, when it was over, the outside world stopped to exist. She had run-on sentences, and some of her sentences did not flow well. This was mostly in the first half of the article. There are several non-sequiturs as well. That's why it's poorly written. If this were a college paper, it would receive a D and possibly an F. So, Dreamers, I did notice these things in her paper, too. But I wasn't going to be nitpicky about grammar at the time because I did go over this article in the Huffington Post twice, almost all of it in its entirety, in part three, once for the content and the second time I was calling out lies and inconsistencies. If I was going to call out all of the squiggly red lines that popped up when I copy and pasted her article into my notes, I would be talking about her for days. There were things that were grammatically incorrect, and I chalked it up to either being one of two things, that English is her second language, and she managed to push herself hard enough to get through college and then slacked off with the grammar since she's done with schooling, or her teachers and her professors were so annoyed with her, like she was one of those pesky kinds of students that's always disputing grades or asking why points were deducted for certain assignments or mistakes that she made in order to get rid of her. The teachers just gave her the points to get her to shut the hell up, right? I just really didn't have the time to get all ticky-tacky about the grammar, but this comment isn't wrong. She did have lots of weird things that she said. She worded things wrong, and grammar was 
really bizarre, especially for somebody who is a doctor of psychology. And maybe Patricia thought that she could pull the same BS with the Orange County prosecutor that she pulled with all of her professors and people that she's dealt with over the years. As she managed to squeeze out a PhD out of all her mess, why not try to squeeze herself out of this mess too, right? Well, the difference is giving Patricia a college degree is hardly the same thing as giving this woman who potentially had a prominent role in the brutal meat cleaver murder of a young man a pass. These people have to be able to sleep at night. And these people, I'm talking about the prosecutors and investigators, these are people that had to clean up the mess that Patricia, Gianni, Shannon, and Cody and their girlfriends that they left behind when they butchered up Gonzalo and left him on the side of the road. Some poor soul had to discover his mutilated body. Somebody had to come and pick him up. His family had to come and look at him to identify him. Someone had to perform an autopsy to interpret the story for Gonzalo, the story that he was no longer going to be able to tell for himself. So many people had to live through what those people did to him, and it all started with Patricia. All of this is all her fault. It would have never happened if it wasn't for her. She set this whole tragedy in motion. Well, maybe if Gonzalo did, in fact, rape her, but Patricia upped the crime from Penal Code 261, which is rape, to California Penal Code 187, which is murder. I want to share with you a little story that happened about maybe two, possibly three years ago now. I was approached by a woman who said that the sister of a friend of hers was murdered. I think that's how the contact was made. I can't quite remember. And asked me if I would cover her story. And she gave me her name and a couple of links to some articles and whatnot. I first asked her if it would be okay with her family if we covered the story and check in with the sister or the mom just to be sure, you know, because when it's somebody personally asking me, not something that I found on the internet. I do kind of want to make sure that the family is okay with this. And some of you may remember all of this happening if you were around and listening to the show back then. Yeah, it was about three years ago. I looked back on my Instagram and I posted about this case. It says 141 weeks ago. Okay, so I connected with the mom. The person connected me with her, and we talked for a really long time. It was like three hours. We got on the phone one afternoon, and we talked forever. And in that conversation, we decided to, instead of doing just one episode, that we would do a separate standalone podcast dedicated to her daughter's story. So she was murdered up in Vacaville, California in 2002. It's unsolved, though there is a suspect or a person of interest that may or may not have been protected by some prominent community family members. I can't exactly remember the whole situation like off the top of my head right now. But anyway, we talked a lot about how the man who actually discovered her daughter's body floating in a drainage ditch and how he suffered from PTSD afterwards and that she, as the mother of the victim, had spent a great deal of time over the years having to comfort and console him and his trauma, which 
turn out to be a unique and unusual thing for her to have to deal with on top of having to deal with her own grief and her own trauma. Because of all people, who would this poor man be able to reach out to when he can't sleep or he's having nightmares about the horrors that he witnessed when he saw her child floating dead in a drainage ditch? Who's going to be there to help him through it? Who's going to understand better than the mother of that young woman? I think about that conversation all the time when we have these cases of particularly brutal and vicious killings that are so gruesome. All the people who are traumatized in the aftermath, like those who suffered after that young man who was beheaded on the Greyhound bus up in Canada in 2008. Or even more recently, and not to get political, it's just I'm talking about the human side of these things. Those two officers who have since taken their own lives in the wake of the storming of the U.S. Capitol building last month. And you just don't know what is going to cause these people to finally break, you know. I had the same conversation way back in episode five when I spoke to Samantha Runyon's mom. The episode's called Superheroes and Sunflowers. She said some of the same things about consoling people around you because they are so sad and they hurt so much for your loss and you end up having to tell them it's okay. I've been living this. I'm making it through. You don't have to be sad for me. I'm doing fine. I'm coping. And I thought the same thing about Gonzalo. Patricia saw what she saw. But there's a certain level of detachment with that woman from it all. She never really struck me as being deeply affected by any aspect of any of the trauma she says she experienced throughout her life. She ran from the law successfully for 17 years. She continued her legal maneuvering for another four years and ended up getting a sentence of six years. So she dragged this whole thing out over the course of more than a quarter century when she could have ended it before she even turned 21 years old. And while she ran from the law, she ascended. She kept ascending and succeeding in every way imaginable. This woman never suffered, at least outwardly. She lived a tremendously fulfilled life, and she never cared about anyone that had to clean up the wreckage that she left behind. And it was so much wreckage. Anyway, with that story I was just talking about, I ended up not covering it. Even though I wrote it twice and recorded it twice, I put a lot of hours into developing it into its own standalone, long-form podcast. The mother of the victim ended up pulling the plug about two or three episodes in because she seemed to get the idea that I was exploiting her daughter's murder for profits. Not quite sure where she got that idea from. She didn't exactly clarify, but from what little I came to understand of it is when she saw iTunes, which is what Apple Podcasts used to be, and downloads, you know, if you want to download a song or something from one of your favorite artists, you pay $1.99 or whatever per song, or you could buy the artist's whole album. And of course, that musician or that band will make that money. I was under the impression that she understood podcast downloads to be lumped into that same sort of pay per download sort of deal. 
And I think we are all very keenly aware that when you download a podcast that was formerly iTunes, which is now known as Apple Podcasts, it's all free. We don't make any money by way of direct downloads through Apple the way your favorite musicians do. Apple does give podcasters a platform for discoverability with their charts and their rating systems. I've had listeners tell me they've discovered our show through searching Apple Podcasts, and we've consistently made our way into the top 200 in the true crime category. So it does bring about new listeners. You know, if you go in there and you leave a rating and a review, it helps bring us up uh, in the charts and gives us more visibility for people to find us. So if there are hosts that are looking to monetize through advertisements that Apple Podcasts can help boost download numbers, which can help with getting advertisers. It also brings about super fans who may eventually want to join Patreon. But anyway, I tried explaining, and I think one of the admins in my Facebook group tried explaining that there's no money being made here, with the exception of listener donations, but her decision was made, and I scrapped all of the work. But you know, Dreamers, I wasn't completely convinced that that was the reason why she backed out, because as we talked, there were some unflattering details about her daughter's life and her lifestyle that perhaps the mom didn't want to be put out there in the world, which is understandable, but also an integral part of understanding why what happened happened. There were some substance abuse and addiction issues, and mom pretty much insisted her daughter go to this rehab facility, and the daughter didn't want to go and ended up checking herself out and leaving very shortly afterwards, and mom was never notified because, you know, she was an adult by then, so mom doesn't need to be notified and um she never knew that her daughter had left and it was some time after she checked herself out that she disappeared and wound up being discovered dead floating in that irrigation canal so there may have been some feelings of guilt on mom's part and you all know me and i know all of you and we are so sensitive to vulnerable people and we would not have ever made this poor woman feel any sort of shame for what anything that happened with her and her daughter. And Lord knows I'm not making any money on running ads in the show. It was frustrating when it happened because I know the reasoning behind what she was telling me was misguided, the whole thing about exploiting her daughter's murder. But if it was because of guilt or shame, there was really nothing that I could do about that to make her feel any differently. And this is a thing that she's been struggling with ever since 2002. And she's just used to struggling with it and having to do so very privately and on her own. So that was that. I really wanted to tell her story, but my hands were tied. Incidentally, her daughter's story was featured on Nancy Grace. And, you know, Nancy Grace is making money off that stuff. So. You would think that I would have been able to give her daughter a little bit of a voice and a platform to possibly help push this case along, but oh well, I tried really hard, and I took a lot of shit because of it too. There was one commenter who said that they knew Patricia, and they wrote, This is not justice. Patricia was a survivor of sexual abuse as a child and sexual assault as a college student. 
She did not immediately report the rape to the police, but instead confided in her friends. I'm sure that most of us would do the same. It is even more understandable given Patricia's abuse history and that she comes from a minority background. For many minorities, the police are not always protectors. It is very unfortunate that her friends took justice into their own hands. Years later, when she reached a place in her life where she felt safe, she started to rebuild her life. I met Patricia many years later when we worked together at the World Health Organization and Webster University. She is a kind and compassionate person. She has devoted her life to helping individuals with mental disorders and learning disabilities. She has touched the lives of many around the world with her research and clinical work, many like herself who come from disadvantaged backgrounds. Putting her in jail only robs the world of someone doing her best to make it a better place. Patricia's daughter was born a few days before my daughter, and they enjoyed many playdates together. In addition to being a lovely person and a highly accomplished professional, Patricia is a wonderful mother. It breaks my heart to think that her daughter might have to grow up without her. As a professional in the field of psychology, as a friend of Patricia's, as a mother, and as a woman, I respectfully ask the DA to reconsider this case. Justice does need to be served, but this is not justice and sends a very chilling message to survivors of abuse and sexual violence. Okay, so while I appreciate Patricia's defenders, the commenters weren't really having it. When she wrote, it is even more understandable given Patricia's abuse history and that she comes from a minority background. For many minorities, the police aren't always protectors. One commenter wrote, I'm not buying this. Her not reporting the rape is not a red flag for me because that's not an uncommon behavior for victims, unfortunately. She did not report a murder. Even if she was reluctant to come forward when she was young because she felt intimidated or because, as a minority, she was leery of the police, she's a college professor now. I don't believe that she didn't understand the importance of reporting a murder. Quote, it is very unfortunate that her friends took justice into their own hands, unquote. This is not what Patricia said. They weren't her friends. In her own words, quote, he and a group of his friends. She said she barely knew them. That's a red flag. It seems odd that a guy she only dated for a few months and his friends would kill somebody because of the rape. Even if her future husband got that enamored with her so quickly, why would his friends care enough to commit murder? It's possible, I suppose, but it sounds fishy. When she said, Patricia did what most survivors of sexual abuse and violence do, anything to survive. This included marrying the man who decided to take justice into his own hands. The commenter said, if this is implying that she married him because he acted like a protector, once again, this is not what Patricia said. She said, quote, I was pressured to marry the man that I had dated so I could not be made to testify against him. This is a red flag too. And how is marrying the one guy supposed to protect the others from being testified against? Regarding all the comments about what a nice person Patricia is, I don't think our justice system is designed to decide prosecuting someone or not is based on what a nice person they've become. That's for the sentencing phase of the trial. I'm not saying the DA doesn't use their own discretion, but I don't think they're supposed to. Also, if she helped murder someone, she should be held accountable. 
Once again, they can take the fact that she turned her life around and use that in the sentencing phase. Okay, so finally, let's see what all of you had to say on some of the Facebook posts about the three episodes we had on this. Kimberly P. said that she was still listening to part one when she Googled Gonzalo and Patricia's picture came up and she was like, oh, yeah, I remember this. And she recalled watching this on Dateline and she thought, too, that Patricia was full of it. And she's pretty sure that Andrea Canning was feeling the same way. And Kimberly, I agree, too. I think Andrea was very nice about everything, I guess, for lack of a better way of describing her. I don't know how she sat there and kept a straight face through it all. To be honest, I guess that's a professional reporter for you. I couldn't. I'd be eye rolling all over the place. (laughs) So anyway, Sarah B said this was one of the better episodes of KD thus far. And well, hopefully we haven't peaked with this lady, right? Because I have a lot more that I want to do. She loved it and thought it was interesting to kind of pick apart this case as we went along, which was essentially what I was doing because there was so much going on in the story. And clearly since I had spent the entire month of January just on this case, and here it is already nine days into February and I'm still at it, right? I'm so ready to move on and I promise we will. This will be the last of it. Nate B. also thinks Miss Patty is full of it. And he commented a lot throughout. And we actually talked in private on Facebook Messenger about the case as well. He thinks Patricia offered too many differing versions of what happened to be given any kind of believability and feels like she was involved in the murder up to her eyeballs. Well, that's pretty obvious. Even whatever happened, just the fact that she went ahead and identified Gonzalo, that right there is where her involvement began. Even if it ended right there, too. It all started right there. It would have never happened if not for that. I think it's pretty clear. The question is, was she really forced or bullied into it or if she helped out willingly? Eh, I don't know. She obviously made it through life okay. She didn't seem to be living in fear or hiding under rocks and completely suffered over the course of the next two decades because she was so afraid of all of these people that were supposedly threatening and bullying her. Brittany A. was glad that we were covering this case. And Dreamers, I have to be honest with you listening. I listen to the Dateline podcast. I don't always watch this show. Sometimes I'll go and look to see if I have it on demand or on the app or something to see what some of these people look like. But I most often listen. And throughout December and January, every Dateline episode had some sort of story out of California or a California connection. And I wanted to do them all. And I don't want to get Dateline fatigue and have you listen to a story on Dateline and then, oh, turn around. Oh, here goes Roseanne doing a story we just heard on Dateline. But anyway, I'm trying to avoid that. So I'm going to step away from Dateline, hopefully, and then maybe I'll come back to one of their California stories in the near future. I did tell you, though, that I listened to Patricia's story on my way back to California just before Christmas, and it consumed my entire month of January, and now February, it's starting to again. So Brittany, like me, said she listened to the Dateline episode in December with Patricia, and her talking was unbearable to listen to her, and she couldn't stand it, and I think she said she ended up turning it off. 
I was kind of annoyed listening to Patricia talk too on the Dateline episode. I, I really had to decide to tune out all of the weird things that she was saying and the odd way she was saying them. And I don't know, there was something about the way she was talking. It didn't come across well in a podcast. She liked our take on the story and the way we look at different angles of things and Andrea Canning. She was really being really nice and she's so cute. I really like watching her. But I think she too wanted to low-key smack Patricia across the face when she was sitting there lying to her. I could tell that she knew Patricia was just lying straight to her face. Nate B. commented again and said that there are people who similarly defend Stephanie Lazarus in the way that they defend uh, Patricia Esparza. And I'm not sure I've made that connection. Uh, Interesting point here, Nate. Maybe there were some colleagues who may have defended Stephanie Lazarus, who worked closely with her, that she was a good cop, so many years on the force, blah, 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 except for the matter of the murder of her ex-boyfriend's wife that she killed back in 85. It doesn't matter how much good she did afterwards. She still did that murder. And by the way, Dreamers, I did cover Stephanie Lazarus. You may or may not have noticed because it's not on the regular feed. It's somewhere in the Patreon feed and it's available to supporters at all levels starting at $1 a month. It's titled The Tale of a Million Years Ago because I was so annoyed watching her hour-long interrogation that Stephanie gave when she was saying, gosh, you're asking me something that was like a million years ago. I was like, no, it was like 20 years ago and I'm pretty sure you remember it because you shot her and bit her and left your DNA when you did it. And it was 86, not 85, Nate, just to be clear. And I scrolled around on my Patreon and I did look up the title of the episode and I did it back in April of 2019. So check that out if you want to hear from Miss Stephanie Lazarus, another liar, liar, pants on fire we've covered. Ray Ray commented that she isn't sure that she agrees with my take on the sexual assault. And... Ray Ray, for me, I think I've decided that I don't know if she was or not. I sort of lean towards that I hope that it was true in a weird way because the motive would be there for the killing if that at all makes any sort of twisted, warped sense. That if all of this was over a massive lie that Patricia was telling, it would just be another layer of tragedy to an already tragic story. But Ray Ray said Patricia was definitely involved in the murder and she needs to pay for it. We can agree on that. She basically said what I said. She can't understand what the motive for the killing would be if there had not been a sexual assault. She doesn't like how Patricia came across in the Dateline interview at all. She had some doubts about the sexual assault during the episode, but in the end, she chose to believe her. Nate B. commented again and said he wondered if Patricia had met with police. If she had told them who she was married to, if she had come forward about what really happened that night to Gonzalo, if she'd said I was there when he was kidnapped or killed or tortured, maybe she wouldn't have been charged. And he's just playing devil's advocate. I've often thought the same thing, too. I think she could have really worked herself an immunity deal here because they didn't have enough evidence back in 95. They certainly had enough by 2012, but in 95, they didn't have it. However, the lying repeatedly, the omitting of details, and the deceiving of law enforcement, for someone who seems to be so smart, she is really quite dumb. And it reminds Nate of Skylar DeLeon's wife, if you remember that story. 
when his wife was offered an immunity to testify against him. I believe Skylar DeLeon is now identifying as a woman, so I'll go ahead and refer to him as her instead. But her wife turned down the plea deal and ended up being convicted and is serving a life sentence without parole. And if you need a refresher, we covered Skylar DeLeon way back in the rough early days of California Dreaming in episode 14, The Tale of Lost at Sea, The Murders of Tom and Jackie Hawks, if you need to refresh your memory. Um, Skylar, she is on death row, um, probably in the men's prison. I'm not exactly sure how all of that technically works when you're in jail like that and condemned. Nate B came back to comment on part two, and he said, yep, she's a liar. She shouldn't have lied her ass off over and over. She wasn't as smart as she thought she was. And also, he wondered how she explained her booty call in Boston to her husband, who ostensibly meant so much to her. I mean, she would have been laid up in Boston for a whole week before going to St. Louis. When he have noticed something, the husband is so gullible. Melanie C. said, Patricia is a conniving person. Was she raped? I still don't know. Girl, me neither. I just don't know. I feel that if she was actually raped, she would have spoken about it to a girlfriend before she would have to an ex-boyfriend, unless she was trying to get some sort of sympathy or attention from Gianni. I think the same thing, too. I don't think I would have turned to an ex-boyfriend. I tried to put myself in, in her position and what her mindset would have been. And I don't even know if I would have turned to even my girlfriends. I, I think I would have, if I decided not to go to police, I probably wouldn't have gone to anybody. I honestly don't believe for a minute that she was scared of Gianni or manipulated by him. I think she was the manipulator. She had dated Gianni, so she knew his personality. If he was the type of person to want to hurt Gonzalo after she told Gianni about being raped, then she wanted him to be attacked and knew Gianni would go after him, and that's premeditation. Logan M. said she tried putting herself in Patricia's shoes if she had been raped. It's awful but it still doesn't make anything else that she did afterwards okay. There are so many other choices than murder. The adult thing irks her too. That's when Patricia said that she needed an adult to come forward to help her. She had a hard time with that because even as a teenager, using that as an excuse would know that it doesn't take away the choices that they make and wouldn't even try it. Logan said she's taken a big leap here, she knows, but she assumes that a 20-year-old who busted ass to get into college and do well knows more of what's up, and I tend to agree. Patricia is way too smart to be that dumb, but Patricia's also said along the way that she wasn't all that sophisticated, so she says. Okay, well, that will officially bring the Patricia Esparza saga to an end. I have already started the next story for you. I know. I know it's shocking. I actually have a plan. It's going to be out of the state of California, but it is a story that's been requested by a couple of listeners that I discuss it. And the reason I'm going to go ahead and do this is because I was going to play a promo for a podcast that I discovered over there in that TCP club group which I recently joined and many of you have too and I want to thank you for joining that group this month is my turn for the giveaway 
So if you comment on the post for my show for this month of February, you will be in the running for some gifts from me. Um, if you already have the gifts, you know, if you're a patron supporter or some of you have asked for gifts, then it's probably some of the same stuff. So you can just say, I don't need to be in the drawing if you already know that you have some of my stickers and buttons and whatnot. But if you don't, go ahead and go over there and you'll be entered into the drawing. It's called TCP Club and I will post a link to that in the show notes. So check down below when you scroll all the way past everything else down to the bottom. Anyway, I discovered this podcast and the story in their first season, and I remember being asked to cover this myself, so I decided to go for it. Even though this case is still ongoing, it hasn't quite made its way through the court system yet. It's getting there. Um, it got held up because of COVID-19 as it slowed things down. So that's up next, and I'll be getting to it right after this. So thank you so much for putting up with Dr. Patty for a month. Yesterday, or two days ago now, because today's Tuesday, as I was writing this, it was Super Bowl Sunday. I didn't watch. I sat here and I was writing and recording for you. All that junk was an obligatory marriage thing that I am not participating in this year. I hope you had a wonderful and fun weekend. And until next time, as always, sweet dreams. And I love you all. Thank you so much. I'll be back soon. Bye.